0: With each passing year, my faith in Jesus becomes a little more simple, a little more difficult, a little more radical, a little more ordinary. Good morning, friends. My name is Mark. It's great to be with you. Oh, yeah. Thanks. It's good to see you. Um, I had a... uh, introduction plan along with that statement to help explain it and maybe weave it in with the sermon. I was going to quote uh, one of my favorite musicians, Rich Mullins. I was going to um, try to capture his humor, his sarcasm, maybe sing a little bit for you. So the good news is uh, you don't have to hear me sing because I cut my sermon down because was, I was worried it was too long. The bad news is you're just going to have to trust me that that one sentence meant something. So thanks for trusting me. Uh, My goal this morning is not to make anything easy for us or to explain things that I cannot explain. So I hope you brought your questions. I hope you bring your doubt. I hope you bring your emotions. I hope you bring the struggles. I hope you just bring it all. I hope you bring yourself. You're here. I'm here. We're here. My goal this morning is in the midst of our worship, for whatever brings you here in the midst of our worship, uh, is to now guide us to try to hear from God together. My goal is to make much of Jesus to be faithful to the scripture story that we are gonna read together and to allow us all room to hear and respond to what the Holy Spirit might be saying to us here and now. How's that sound? Cool, let's pray. God, thank you uh, so much for um, time together, time to collectively be here and worship. Would you remind us, uh, would you even begin to speak to us individually in ways that we can hear from you? Um, Again, with all of the things that we carry that we're, we're just here. So we trust you that you are um, in control, that you see us, that you hear us. Um, Lord, and would you just remind us that it's not about here and now. It's about Monday through Saturday. It's about the people in our lives. It's about the pain in our world and even in us. And um, We trust you, Lord. So thanks so much how much you love us. We love you too. Amen. I've recently heard that the Christmas story must be told in the context of suffering and death because that's the only way the story makes sense. I've recently heard that the Christmas story must be told in the context of suffering and death. Otherwise, it doesn't make sense. So unfortunately, but fortunately, that's exactly what we're gonna talk about this morning. We're gonna begin in the gospel of Matthew. We're gonna talk a little bit about Matthew 1, and we're gonna look specifically at Matthew 2. Matthew 1, here we go. It's the beginning of Jesus's origin story his beginnings, or his past, and it's important for us to think about these things as we consider his adult life and his present life right here, right now. Why? Because the present is shaped by the past. Easy enough. So we're, we're gonna go backwards in order to go forwards. Even for you and I, we are shaped by where we are from. For this reason, Matthew tells us the story of Jesus's family life. But it turns out, the Christmas story is, is far more provocative, far more subversive than modern world might realize. Matthew doesn't just name the setting and the characters as eighth grade or freshman year English MLA format would have you do. He doesn't just do it for that. He does it because the origin story of Jesus will directly inform who it is that Jesus is. In one verse, Matthew 1-1, Matthew makes three massive theological claims. They're all deeply rooted in history, specifically Jewish history, riveting, I know. Here's what they are. In Matthew one, we see that Jesus is one, he is the Messiah. That is, he's the Hebrew one to come and usher in the healing and the reign and the rule of the kingdom of God. He's two, the son of David, based off of the promised in 2 Samuel 7, literally the great, 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 great grandson of King David. And three, he's the son of Abraham. That is that Jesus is the one true Israelite. He is the one who walks out perfectly the image of God that we humans have intended to do. So for Jewish people, the first century Jewish person Reading or hearing this, just one verse, would mean that Jesus is actually the climax to the story of all of the Hebrew Bible. And Jesus is actually the climax to the story of all of human history. That is no small claim. So if you know your Hebrew Bibles well, you will know that it's a giant cliffhanger. You will know that it feels like the ellipses on a text message, when you get those three dots and you're like, what are they gonna say? And for Matthew, Jesus is the answer to what the Hebrew Bible has been searching for. The answer to ancient Israelite religion, the answer to the cosmos, the answer for you and I, the answer for all of creation, humanity included in this one sentence and it's all about Jesus. Woof, that's some good writing. And then follows the genealogy of Jesus. We read 39 names and we love them all. Maybe it's a little boring. And yet we have to remember that in this ancient world, this ancient culture, it's not like our modern one. Tribal cultures like Israel, tracing your family back historically was a part of your identity, a vital part. And so this concept still exists and yet perhaps like me, It's a little alien to you. I would ask these questions. How well do you know the meaning of your last name? How far back in history can you trace it? On your mom's side, on your dad's side? How well do you know the the physical land in which you're on right now and in which your ancestors have historically been? For me, I understand it more through my eyes my family, my wife and I and our dog, and then maybe my parents, but not through the eyes of our families, 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 families. N.T. Wright says this, for many cultures, ancient and modern, and certainly in the Jewish of Matthew's day, this genealogy was the equivalent of a drum roll, a fanfare of trumpets, a town crier calling for attention. Any first century Jew would find this family tree both impressive and compelling, Like a great procession down a city street, we watch figures out at the front, the ones in the middle, but all eyes are waiting for the one who comes in the greatest position of greatest honor right at the end. And so a Jewish person reading or hearing this message of Matthew would greatly care about whose son you are and how that's woven into your story. What do we see in Jesus's family tree? Matthew's genealogy, like N.T. Wright asserts, is both impressive and compelling. Impressive because there's hints of royalty. Compelling because there's also scandal and misfits, the outcast and the foreigner. And so what is Matthew hinting at? He's hinting at this idea that the family that Jesus comes from is the same family that Jesus has come for. And so I wanna jump in to this morning in Matthew two, our story. And while we do, I'm gonna ask something of you. Would you try to imagine this story being your own? I will warn you, though, because this story is a part of the story of God, it's a dangerous story. And I don't mean that in a cliche way. I don't mean that in a religious way. I mean that in the real way of dangerous. Unlike the new story, The Mandalorian, where we meet Hollywood's newest and cutest meme star, Baby Yoda, who I affectionately refer to as the baby Yodes. And his partner, this literal warrior, this knight in shining armor Mando. Unlike that story. I hope you see quickly that the story recorded in Matthew 2 takes place in real life. And as such, it has very upside down, backwards, and dangerous implications for your life and mine. And while it isn't lost on me, that this story of the Mandalorian and this little green baby oddly parallels the story of Jesus. We have eight episodes of a child with mysterious healing power whisked away in a sci-fi bassinet like Moses's basket or Jesus's manger. All of this happens, of course, on the run from bounty hunters and assassins and really an evil empire. All the while, This small child is protected by an adult who he himself has lost his parents to the tragedies of war. But again, I'm not asking you to jump into the shoes of a hero. I'm gonna ask you to jump into the story, the sandals, if you would, of a teenager. I hope you will follow this story, this scripture, wherever it takes us, however difficult, however exposing, painful, or even offensive. Because at the end, I think we will find the most vulnerable being in existence, God. Because the same God who we read in Colossians who holds all things together became a baby that needed to be held. This is the alarming story of Jesus' birth and of his family. It's the story of a virgin birth. Maybe you've heard it. The story of a 14-year-old unwed teenage girl who gets pregnant. And she has no way to verify her claim. All of this happens before she is to be wed with her 18-year-old fiance, Joseph. And so we enter this beautiful and dangerous story. The origin story of Jesus is oddly paralleled to the origin story in Hebrews. We read Matthew 1.18. Now the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. And this word birth is oddly enough the same Hebrew word if you track it down as Genesis. And so in our first century mind, we immediately go back to Genesis and we read, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And so Matthew wants you to immediately remember that the same spirit of God who is hovering over the void and formless earth and creating is now hovering over the void and empty womb of Mary, recreating. If Genesis is the first story of the Old Testament and it's a story all about God's creation and all about how things go belly up, then Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, is certainly all about how God will make all things new again. That's beautiful. However, all great or spiritual realities that we can't see or touch form on the ground in ways that we can see or touch. And here's where things get dangerous. Joseph is an 18-year-old guy. Maybe you've been that guy. And he's in a one-year engagement period with Mary. And during this time, we know that Jewish culture won't allow Joseph and Mary to have sex. In fact, they weren't even allowed to be alone together until their wedding night. And so now in this cultural reality, how do you think this spiritual plan of God is gonna carry out? This plan of God to recreate and to pull all of creation back together again. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. You show up at your in-laws house or maybe their hut. You whisper over to your husband to be Joseph and you say, can you come here for a second? And Joseph meets you at the side away from the rest of the family. And it gets a little quiet and Mary pauses and she says these words, I'm pregnant. And immediately, Joseph's heart sinks. It's like a bomb of betrayal has gone off. He's sad, he's heartbroken, he's angry. He's been waiting to be close to this woman, his fiance. And yet right now at the same time, he wants to be close with her. He wants nothing more than to be as far away from her as he can be. Why? She's cheated on him. Of course, clearly. And all of this is going on in Joseph's mind, and his heart. And Mary tries to interrupt him still quietly in the corner. And she says, it's not what you think. It, it's God's. And so if we are married, do you think Joseph believes us? Certainly not. And even the scriptures attest to the fact that Joseph, albeit a stand-up guy, quietly plans to divorce her. He doesn't want to disgrace her or for her to be publicly humiliated by accusations and rumors or be put to death by the Torah because adultery, but he plans to divorce her. And then an angel comes to Joseph in a dream one night and the angel says this, Joseph, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. The baby that's in her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so we read that Joseph did as the angel said, took her on as his wife. Beautiful, right? I hope you find the pattern. And here's where the story gets rather inconvenient for this newly formed family because again, All spiritual realities, well, they take place right alongside ordinary life. What's the best way to begin a marriage? What advice would you give? What's the best way to begin a marriage? How about go on an 80-mile trip (laughs) on foot in the desert while you're pregnant? You see, some Roman politician raised the taxes. Ah, real life. You know, because the Roman Empire, this political militarized entity has been taking over your homeland for the last 50 years. And this forces everyone to go back to our homelands because we have to take part in the census. And here you are pregnant and you have to make this trip. Oh, and by the way, did I mention you were pregnant on an 80 mile trip in the desert, like quite pregnant? Because as you start on this journey, your way to Bethlehem, the town of David, because your husband is from that line, that lineage for this census, the time is now. The time is now when you go into labor. And you're away from your mom and your aunt, your family, perhaps your midwife, and it's in another town, not your own, where you give birth. And you give birth in these really awkward circumstances. This cave or this manger, we're not exactly sure. And then all of a sudden, these magicians, these astronomers come in and they're giving presents to your child. And then some shepherds come up and they want to hold your baby. And you're probably just thinking, did you wash your hands before you, like, this little dude has to stay alive. And like, wow, so much is going on. And I just wanna slow us down and I just want us to remember that yes, we are imagining to be a 14-year-old girl whose life has been radically transformed by God through a mysterious birth. Your fiance almost left you, but didn't. Your entire reputation was almost ruined, but it wasn't. Your life was almost taken from you, but it wasn't. The government's raising taxes. Now, strangers are coming to meet you and your family, but what's the one thing that you're thinking about? Your baby. You just gave birth. And so allow yourself to wonder, when Mary breastfed Jesus, did she cry out when he bit her? Did she cry out, did she sob when he would not latch? And maybe this seems too messy, even too vulgar for us to wonder and imagine and ask. But the truth and sacredness is all intertwined with the human rawness of this story. It requires us to go there. And so we think of feeding Jesus. We think of birthing Jesus the expulsion of blood, the smell of sweat and the salt tears coming from a mother hitting the little child, the salt of the earth. And what is this 14-year-old feeling? 14, lonely and tired and hungry and annoyed and overwhelmed and she's in love seeing her child for the first time. We must remember the normalness, the humanness of the birth, the, the incarnation was, ma- yes, made possible by the power of the Holy Spirit, but also the meekness of Mary as a mother. It was Mary who carried the privilege and did the work of labor. If the women want to like, amen, like I get it. So we cannot move too quickly on from the scandal of the birth of God and how it lies in the cracked nipple of a 14-year-old girl. And so we celebrate Jesus. We celebrate Emmanuel. God is now with us within this rather awkward and inconvenient trip. And then there's this birth and the trajectory of all human history has changed. Beautiful. You catch the pattern. But then suddenly things go from awkward and inconvenient to terrible. Not just dangerous, mind you, terrible. Because remember, all spiritual realities, well, they take place in ordinary life. And we all know, all know, that real life sometimes is terrible. You're a young mom holding your baby. You are exhausted. And you look over to your husband who's chosen to stick by you. And you hear a report. You hear that there are soldiers, Roman soldiers, walking the five miles from Jerusalem to Bethlehem and they're coming for the very infant in your arms. They're coming for your baby. Matthew 1, Matthew 2, excuse me, 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, where is the child who has been born King of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him and calling together all of the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where this Messiah was, was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet and you Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who is to be shepherd of my people Israel." Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem saying this, go and search diligently for the child and when you found him, bring me word so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they heard the king, they set out and there ahead of them went the star and they saw its rising until it had stopped in the sky. They were overwhelmed with joy and on entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, They laid down their treasures and their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. After having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, however, the wise men left for their own country by another road. Who is Herod? Perhaps you're familiar with this story in Luke 13 where Jesus calls a politician a fox. This is the fox's father, Herod. A shrewd politician He was known as a great soldier, a great public speaker, and a builder. However, Herod became paranoid, and thus he became a tyrant, worried that he would lose his kingdom. And like Pharaoh of Egypt of old, we might remember, we see a politician whose heart grows hard. And while there's much to say about this false king, this story is not about him. This story is about a humble and vulnerable king. But let me indulge you with the end of Herod's story. Upon his death, Herod issued two commands. The first, to execute recently imprisoned Jewish leaders so that the people would be mourning during his death. The second, to execute his own son Antipater. This is Herod. They're coming for your baby. What do you do? Now we see the holy family, Joseph, Mary and baby Jesus becomes a refugee family. They become a family on the run. Matthew 2, verses 13 to 23 in your notes. Now after they, the wise men, had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until Herod's death. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet, out of Egypt I have called my son. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated and he sent and killed all of the children in all around Bethlehem who were two years or under according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, wailing and loud lamentation. Rachel is weeping for her children, but she will not be consoled because the children are no more. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who were seeking the child's life are dead. Then Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was ruling in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And so after being warned in a dream, he went to the district of Galilee instead. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be, might be fulfilled, he will be called a Nazarene. This family on the run, 14-year-old Mary, 18-year-old Joseph, they're fleeing in the middle of the night, and what are they thinking? What would you be thinking? A 3,000-mile trek, most likely to Alexandria, Egypt. Why? Because there, there is a community of Jewish people. Go where it's familiar, And on the way, you hear this report. And the report is of these soldiers, you know, those Roman soldiers who were looking for your baby. And they went to Bethlehem and rounded up all of the baby boys who were two years and under, and they slaughtered them. And they were looking for your baby. And this haunts you as you go down to Egypt. And you're stuck in Egypt. And you raise this baby's life for the first couple years in Egypt and your husband has a dream, but you're terrified this time. And so a, a report confirms it. King Herod has died, and so you get ready to listen to the angel, listen to this dream, and you make the trek. But on your way home, you hear that Herod's son is in charge. And so you do that thing out of protection for your family, and you call the audible. Instead of going to Joseph's hometown in David, which makes sense, what is this? Baby boy really is the Messiah. We have to go to the city of David. They go to Mary's hometown. The podunk, little hill country, small town. And you know what happens in small towns? Rumors. And so you get there and the rumors are rampant of this so-called mysterious pregnancy. And so the question is what do you do if you're Mary, what do you do if you're Mary? And while you think about that question, I've asked one of our high school seniors to play a song that he wrote. I invite you to sit with this song and listen to my friend Gethin. Gethen.
1: I won't give up I won't give up the fight You stay through the night I won't give up I won't give up the fight You stay through the night It's a spiritual battle with grace overcoming, peace everlasting, secured by your love. Spiritual battle with grace overcoming, and peace everlasting, secured by your love. I won't give up I won't give up the fight You stay through the night I won't give up I won't give up the fight You stay through the night It's a spiritual battle with grace overcoming And peace everlasting Secured by your love Spiritual battle With grace overcoming And peace everlasting Secured by your And I choose breath I choose life I am leaving this death At the cross tonight And the battle's not over But the war is won Jesus has conquered, His will be done. And I choose breath, I choose life. I am leaving this death at the cross tonight battle's not over, but the war is won, cause Jesus has gone, His will be done, spiritual battle, spiritual battle. Spiritual bad spiritual
0: bad. That was awesome. Eugene Peterson writes. The life of faith cannot be lived in generalities or abstractions. All of the great realities, the spiritual realities that we can't touch or see, take form on the ground that we can touch and see. What is Christmas all about? This isn't a quote from uh, Charlie Brown. That's why you stick to your notes because then random stuff comes to you. But Christmas is about the spiritual battle made physical made so that we can touch and see. What is the origin story of Jesus, the fulfillment of the Hebrew scriptures and the spirit of God urge us towards? Trust God, resist the empire. God takes the form of a baby because divine helplessness is still greater than any force in the universe. When on the first Christmas, divine humility, divine powerlessness and divine poverty are revealed, As the foundation of all that exists, this revelation of God in the flesh threatens all of our human notions of power. It threatens all human leadership that rests solely on the exertion of might and personal charisma. Real Christmas was and is political. Herod turned the land of Judea into a place of misery and weeping. Jesus as opposed as a king, will lead his people in a new return from exile, a new escape from a wicked king and into a new promised land that we call the kingdom of heaven. It was this mission, it was this reality in which the political leaders, the religious leaders eventually killed Jesus. Why? To hold on to their power and their leadership and in the face of such divine humility and vulnerability, they turned to violence. What they did not know is that in killing Jesus, they permanently reversed not only their rule, but all violent actions. Violence has no future because of this infant God, King Jesus. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. As citizens of heaven, as children of the kingdom of God, we too are a part of a dangerous revolution. Jesus's origin story promises us that this ruling of this age, political and spiritual, are living on borrowed time. The Christmas story is God's answer to all evil, all injustice and death that we see around and in us. Jesus's inception is the annual reminder that God's liberating love will always find the darkest corners of our earth and we get to be a part of that liberating love. Christmas is intended to be a bold political and spiritual profession by Christians to trust God and resist empire. So friends, the invitation is yours, the invitation is mine, and it is ours. Will we follow Jesus even when it's hard? Will our choice be to receive, participate, and be sent from such a story as this morning? Can we trust such a vulnerable king As this child, can we walk the road of victory by way of suffering? Can we conquer our enemies by dying for them? Can we join with this refugee family over the corrupt power and hunger of Pharaoh, Herod, and empires today? Do we come alongside this Middle Eastern teenage mother of God, and the brave young man that chose her and a baby, not his own, over the easy way out. And while this invitation is surely extended to all of us, the cost may be different. For those of us who would align ourselves with the empire and using power and force to get our way, we must repent and let go of such ways. We have to surrender our power and learn to be a humble servant. For those of us who are on the run, We must trust and believe that God indeed is doing such a beautiful and dangerous work of restoring all things. The choice is there. Who will we bow to? Who will we trust? Do we actually have hope in this vulnerable king? Let us be clear. Yes, this means we will have to forgo our ways of ruling. Yes, this means learning to love those that we have convinced ourselves to hate. Yes, the way of Jesus is through suffering and a love that goes through death. Yes, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It is not a grand, coercive kingdom that is built upon violence. So it will offend and be foreign to us. Yes, following Jesus is not always easy, but just maybe it's worth it. So here's your invitation this morning. The table of the Lord is ready. In Matthew 26, we read, While they, the disciples and Jesus were eating, Jesus took a loaf of bread and after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. It is the table where Jesus is the host and we are his company. It is the table we share with the poor of the world with whom Jesus identified himself. It is a table of communion with the earth in which Jesus became incarnate as a baby. It is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made for those who love him and for those who want to love him more. So come to the table, you who have much faith and you who have little, you who have been here often and you who have not been here long you who have tried to follow Jesus and you who have failed. Come, because it is Jesus who invites you and it is his will that those who want to meet him should meet him here. Around Journey Church, we're dippers, not sippers. I made that mistake one time. (laughs) When you're ready, whatever that looks like for you, it doesn't always have to be this somber moment. Maybe you need to run to the Lord's table this morning. But you can grab a cracker and you can dip it in the wine or the juice. There's gluten-free on the ends. The only thing I would ask is that because of such a big church family, could you help us maybe come up on one side and go down the other? It just helps, but do what you need to do. This is an invitation for you, friends. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting
1: our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.